0: Welcome to the iConnect with Baxter Canada podcast. This is where we connect with healthcare providers from various clinical settings to learn more about how they are leading through innovation, protocol development, and integration of evidence to provide excellent clinical care to their patients. Join the conversation with your hosts from Medical Affairs at Baxter Canada. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of iConnect with Baxter Canada podcast. My name is Michelle DeGloria. I am a registered nurse and a medical science liaison supporting the medication delivery team at Baxter Canada. And I will be your host for this episode. As always, our goal is to bring you interesting and relevant topics that influence your day to day practice as a clinician. I'm excited to welcome Dan Landry from Moncton, New Brunswick. Thank you for listening. For this episode, I am joined by Dan Landry. Dan, would you be able to introduce yourself to us and uh, describe your current role and your experience?
1: Sure. So yeah, my name is Dan Landry. I'm an infectious disease pharmacist at the Georges Dumont University Hospital Center in Moncton, New Brunswick. Um, My current role, I guess I kind of juggle a lot of different hats at the same time. Uh, So I, I have involvement with direct patient care, which is primarily revolving around antimicrobial stewardship. Uh, I also am the coordinator for our regional stewardship program. Um, So I I kind of also help support different providers, so nurses, pharmacists, physicians, with regard to uh, antimicrobial stewardship uh, policies or or programs that we have going on. Um, I, I guess I we, we kind of talked about this before recording started, but I've also decided, since I'm not busy enough, apparently, that I should uh, start my own website. Uh, during the COVID pandemic, working in infectious disease, I was bombarded by questions from friends, family, uh, random people I've never met on the internet, uh, asking me questions about COVID or treatments. And, you know, I'm sure everybody's well aware of the amount of Crap and misinformation that's floating around. So I got tired of answering the same question, but I also found that I enjoyed science communication. So I decided to start my own website, teach myself how to build a website, and kind of build a website to explain healthcare topics, primarily surrounding medications, but also disease states and stuff, in a language that's easier to understand because, you know, all, all your websites online are okay, but they give this kind of like very hard to understand overview of stuff. And I just wanted something that the average person could understand. So I started it. it's called our explanation.com. I was very happy when I thought of that name. Uh, very since I'm a cool.
0: <laughs> so when everyone else was learning to bake bread, you decided to uh, become a web developer. Excellent.
1: Uh, yeah. Although, I mean, I, I'm not I'm not coding anything. I mean, it's not that fancy of a website, but I was still pretty happy with myself.
0: No, that's very cool. And we will definitely link that website in the show notes. So I encourage everyone to check it out and have a look. Um, What you will find with Dan is he's very open, honest, and has a great sense of humor. So thank you, Dan, for joining me today. Sure. Um, Happy to be here. I want to dig into your experience in antimicrobial stewardship and I was wondering if you could tell our listeners what exactly antimicrobial stewardship is and why is it important
1: So antimicrobial stewardship I could answer this in a lot of different ways but at the end of the day it boils down to you want to make sure that somebody who needs antibiotics gets the right one at the right dose for the right amount of time and Also the reverse is that of that is that we want to make sure that if they don't need an antibiotic, that they don't actually get one. Mm -hmm. Um, it it might sound a little odd to somebody who's not actually working in healthcare, but like there's a lot of studies that have looked at this and the range is about 30 to 50% of antimicrobial use is either inappropriate, unnecessary, or could improve. So that's like a staggering amount. Um, But the funny thing of antimicrobials is that it's mostly overdoing it. So it's not like if Mm -hmm. you say had somebody come in with a heart attack and you said, oh, 50% of them are poorly treated. Well, a lot of them would probably have very poor outcomes. But with this, most of the time is just we're overdoing it. When I talk to patients, I always use the example of, you know, if we give you something that's much too potent, it's like going rabbit hunting with a bazooka. Right. You will eventually have your primary outcome of trying to kill the infection, but you're also gonna have a ton of collateral damage. So, so and the other problem, obviously, for for anyone who who, um, works in in hospital, we we talk about, you know, antimicrobial resistance. Well, overexposing people to antibiotics can lead to antibiotic resistance. So if I poorly treat somebody's high blood pressure, it doesn't mean that their neighbor's high blood pressure is gonna be harder to treat. But if I treat your urinary tract infection improperly, then your neighbor's UTI might actually be harder to treat. So there's this population level effect as well. So, uh, and it's not just an academic point. I mean, there's a lot of people around the world that unfortunately die due to these infections because they're either hard or impossible to treat. And there's a, I know there's a report in the UK in the early 2010s that said, if we don't do anything by 2050, there'll be more people dying due to a resistant infection than if you combined all deaths due to cancer and diabetes. Wow, That's
0: That's every year.
1: And that's probably an understatement because they've actually upped their estimates lately. So it's probably even higher than that. So um, yeah, we we definitely need to do something. That's for sure. So that's where antimicrobial stewardship comes in.
0: What would you say have been the greatest aha moments for you in this role? Was it, you know, what have you heard? What have you learned? Maybe what are the gaps in um, clinician knowledge around antimicrobial use?
1: Uh, One thing that I was, I guess, almost saddened to hear is that irrespective of the profession, if it's pharmacists, if it's physicians, nurse practitioners, nurses, across the board, every single person fresh out of university or training has told me, oh my God, my knowledge of antibiotics is terrible. Wow. I, I, I don't think anyone has ever said, you know what, I'm pretty comfortable with this. <laughs> it's, everybody seems to say that they're not comfortable with it. I'm not sure if it's a failure of the education systems, if it's just not prioritized, because like I said, if you mistreat these people, they're still getting better most right. of the time. So, you know, if, if, I don't know if it's a sense, uh, um, I don't even know how to really say this, but like a promotional problem where we're not promoting the importance of it enough. But I think that's probably the most staggering thing is I've noticed that across the board, most people are really not comfortable with it and their knowledge base is not that good. Um, I found that a lot of people just kind of memorize recommendations. I don't really understand why they're like that. So that's why like, I've always been a fan of people will, will understand it better if they understand the why
0: yes. behind
1: things. Um, other than that, I mean, it, it's been a really great experience so far because most people are very happy to have help when I go and am involved in a case and say, "Okay, well, actually, this might be better for your patient because they realize you know, that, that optimizing their antibiotics is best, is best for everyone.
0: Well, I think that's one of the things as a healthcare provider that um, all of us go to work hoping to do the right thing. None of us want to go to do the wrong thing. So I imagine having you in that supportive role, um, especially if I'm not feeling that confident in my knowledge or understanding of the best option, would be very reassuring. And I, I would think, given that your role is regional, demonstrates not only a local need for, um, support, but a larger need.
1: Yeah. And, and I mean, at the end of the day, even if people don't want to do it, it's, it's something that's required mm-hmm. to be done now where beforehand you didn't like, it was just a, Oh, it would be great if you could do this. Well, now it's like accreditation Canada, it's a required organizational practice. So I think that's what probably made it go more mainstream where unfortunately people just got forced to do it. Right. Um, I, I mean, I might be. Uh, I th- I'm trying to think. I'm trying I mean, to think of the way to say it, but like I, I it, it it might be best to just sometimes you, the carrot doesn't work. You have to go to the stick. Right. Uh, for for people <laughs> to do it.
0: Yeah. No. And I think even if I go back in my head to um, my practice in in a hospital. It was sort of the early days of the introduction of an antimicrobial stewardship. And I know the challenges that our pharmacy department had on getting the buy-in. So I do believe that probably you're absolutely right. Having more of a uh, regulatory expectation has undoubtedly benefited not only organizations, but probably also the end patients and any of us who could potentially be patients at some point in our lives.
1: Well, yeah, exactly. And I think one of the one thing that I think, I don't want to say sabotage, but one thing that might've hindered antimicrobial stewardship in the early days is that it, the real initial stuff around this was stuff like, oh, well, it'll help us save money. Right. Which, I mean, it, it will, yes, but i think people harped on that way too much because the average clinician doesn't really care about how much things mm-hmm. cost i mean they, they think about it but it's not their number one thought at the end of the day it's patient care which mm-hmm. is number one so what i find i've been switching when i talk to people about it it's like well you know it is evidence-based you know it does decrease the amount of antibiotics we use per capita in the hospital it improves the amount of people that get treatment that is actually concordant with guidelines and best practices. We use less of the high risk stuff uh, that has more side effects, more collateral damage. Uh, It's actually been shown that you'll reduce C diff rates in a hospital. Uh, Mm -hmm. You can reduce hospital stay. So, and that's just, you know, the tip of the iceberg. There's so many things that benefit patients. And really the way I sell it is it's not a cost savings measure. This is a basic, patient safety thing you should be doing.
0: Um, What are some of the benefits for patients when antimicrobial stewardship is followed um, for clinicians and for the organization?
1: Um, Well, for the organization, at the end of the day, like I said, it's a a required organizational practice. You have to do it to be an accredited center, so that obviously helps. Uh, But um, the shorter hospital stay is definitely a big one for both organizations and hospitals, because uh, I don't know about any elsewhere in Canada, but I know here in New Brunswick, our healthcare system is having a hard time keeping up with demand mm-hmm. as the population gets older. Um, so this is definitely a big deal. Um, but also I think from an organizational point of view, it's important to realize that these aren't just you invest in it once and then it's done. Right. Um, you have to see this as basically st- Decide how you want to spend the money. Do you want to spend the money on better care or do you want to spend the money on improper care and all the consequences of that improper care? Even if it's cost neutral, I'd rather pay for the good care. Right. Um, So for a given example, uh, there have been, you know, pilot projects that show that when you actually invest and hire a clinical pharmacist to do follow-ups and to actually do proper evaluations for stewardship, it does show that it helps in- improve your, your um, treatments that are offered to patients. So they're getting more like optimized treatments, uh, they're getting less IV drugs, they're getting more oral drugs, and at the end of the day, it improves care. But once you remove the funding from these pilot projects, everything reverts back to the mean.
0: Right.
1: So it- it's not like you can just flip a switch and it's done, These are things that, unfortunately, you have to keep going. I mean, education is well and good for providers, but at the end of the day, you often just need somebody on the ground doing the actual work.
0: Right, and I think you highlight a very um, important point, that uh, in order for a program to be sustainable, quite often funding is required. And it sounds like embedding the resources to support ongoing education, ongoing patient assessment, um, likely takes one sort of layer of responsibility or shifts the responsibility a little bit from uh, perhaps the physician or the nurse practitioner who's doing the prescribing and it becomes more of a collaborative uh, team approach versus one individual making uh, decisions.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I stress this all the time is if you're, if you're going to spend money, at least spend it smartly because Mm -hmm. for example, I think in, I forget what the exact number amount, don't quote me on this, but I remember there's a study in the mid-2010s that said like a C. diff case costs you like, I think it was like ten or $15,000 per case extra wow. than if they didn't have C. diff. So, you know, if you have a lot of C. diff and all of a sudden you reduce C. diff rates, but you have to pay somebody to do that, well, it might be cost neutral, but it's still net benefit to the system.
0: Right. And you think so. of the ongoing, you know, complications of even – uh not only to the patient, but to their family, to all of those sort of the ripple effect that is quite often very difficult to quantify, whether it's the deconditioning and the weakness that a patient experiences just from having an extended length of stay in hospital. Um, And if they've been admitted with a long-term infection, we know that their outcomes are worse when they leave the hospital and their quality of life definitely changes. So I think those are really good points as well. Mm. Um, What impact do you feel antimicrobial stewardships have on organizational policies and practices? Have you noticed a shift in your own hospital organizations? Um, Maybe the the use of uh, broad-spectrum antibiotics versus very narrow-spectrum? Or have you... Been able to sort of make the earlier conversion from IV to PO uh, medications, or perhaps discontinuing completely. Uh,
1: yeah, I, I mean, we've seen different stuff in different settings because, unfortunately, uh, here in New Brunswick, we're not you know swimming in resources. Mm-hmm. So there, there's some sites that we have trouble getting enough people working to actually have the resources on site to do the work. Mm-hmm. So. Depending where you look, but yeah, we've had examples here in the province of, uh, like you said, uh, um, having that IV treatment switch to oral treatment much faster. And, you know, we'll we'll follow that over time. Um, We've seen uh, uh, different interventions where, um, for example, we had a major initiative in the mid, I think it was around 2016, where I think we were the first province in Canada to do this to the level we did, but we had a major initiative on penicillin allergies and, and beta-lactam allergies, where before if somebody had a penicillin allergy on their chart, you essentially avoided all similar medications like the plague. Right. But by doing so, you're getting to all the more toxic, less effective drugs. So when we had this big initiative, now a lot of those people are finally actually receiving the a more safe, more effective antibiotic um whereas before they didn't, and now that actually practices like kind of ripple effect um, spread across Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not saying we, we did it all, I mean, I think the tide was going in that direction anyway, but just to show that initiatives like that now, uh, six years later, nobody even questions it anymore where when we first started this, we essentially had to like sit down with people for a good 20 minutes to explain why this was not a horrible idea. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas now everybody's like, oh yeah, of course, that's fine. We don't even question it anymore. So it really, it can have an impact on the culture. But I I think we also had a lot of support from the top of the organization, which I think helps um, because it doesn't seem like you're just pulling against the group or trying to keep the tide from rising. Like, I mean, this way you have everybody kind of going the same direction.
0: So if I go back to your um, regional role, would you say that you've been able to offer some standardization of care across different organizations or has your role been more around education and supportive? How does that work exactly? I'm just thinking for others who may be thinking, hmm, could we benefit from a regional role?
1: Uh, well, definitely you could, um, I've worn a lot of different hats. I've kind of tried to juggle different things because there's, at the end of the day, there's no right or wrong way to do antimicrobial stewardship. You do it based on resources available and your local context. Um, not everything works everywhere. Um, there's, there's obviously, before I get started, there's guidelines available, best practice guidelines. AMI Canada has one, IDSA has some. There's uh, courses available from uh, Accreditation Canada. The Society of Infectious Disease Pharmacists has a great one. So there's a lot of guides out there for people. Um, But, yeah, we've done standardization of care. We've done, uh, for example, like pre-printed order sets Mm -hmm. for IV to PO conversion. We've done some for uh, community-acquired pneumonia um, antibiotic order sets to really standardize care, COPD exacerbation, so to to really – promote proper antibiotic use and try and make it as easy as possible. Um, but we do education. Um, since the pandemic started, I haven't really done this just because, well, COVID is aren't. taking up a lot of my time, but, uh, prior to the pandemic, we also did a series of webinars where I'd offer webinars to any physician, pharmacist in, in our health authority that wanted to listen in, basically talk about, uh, different disease states or a refresher on antibiotics, um, things Mm -hmm. like that, things like that. But also we had, uh, we have a, um, web app that we can use that houses all our guidelines so that physicians have access to that at the point of care, uh, pharmacists as well. So, you know, dosing recommendations on antibiotics, antibiotic recommendations, uh, guidelines can even be like algorithms where you select different things Mm -hmm. and it tells you what to give to that patient. So, We try and tackle it from different angles because at the end of the day, there's no perfect way to do this.
0: Yeah, I I don't think it's likely a one-size-fits-all. If you were to um, pick one thing that you would suggest an organization who's, you know, sort of looking at this regionally, uh, is there one thing that you would say start with this first? It's kind of uh, the lowest-hanging fruit, the easiest to tackle, or would it Uh. vary?
1: I guess it depends. Do you mean interventions or do you mean just even before you get there?
0: I'm thinking maybe we take it from both perspectives before you get there. And maybe then the the top intervention that you would suggest or recommend.
1: Okay. well, I mean, the the first step, if you don't even if you have absolutely nothing, you're starting from zero, which I assume is probably not that likely in the hospital setting. But, you know, maybe long term care, they don't have anything. And, And honestly, I think long term care would be an excellent place for these policies as well. So, I mean, number one, make it a priority patient safety program. This this has to be seen as patient safety, patient uh, uh, optimal care programs. And you need to invest in it. You can't just make people do this on the side of their desk on top of the 15,000 right. other things they have going. You need to have, and I'm not saying you need to harm, hire an army of pharmacists to do this. I mean... Just start slow. Maybe mm-hmm. have one person as your coordinator and develop a plan. Um, but if you want to do something that is kind of easily, I don't want to say handed to, but like basically that anyone can do is IV to peel conversion. That's probably the lowest hanging fruit um, that I think would have a benefit to patients. Some people would say hospital formularies and restrictions, but Personally, I think IV to PO would be the easiest because you can easily put processes in that kind of just piggyback on normal processes. So maybe it's the nursing unit has a report that prints off, hey, this patient's been on an IV for more than four days. Can you look at it? Even just something as simple as that, like a little reminder to check into something can, can make a big difference. Obviously, if you have an actual formal program of somebody physically going to the unit, checking the chart and making a suggestion, that's even better. But I think that's the easiest one to get into to start.
0: Fantastic. Um, I'm wondering if you would provide your top three recommendations for healthcare organizations to consider.
1: Uh, Well, I think I actually probably already said two of them. Uh, So I'll say it again. Uh, Make it a priority patient safety program. Like priority this is not just the, oh, it would be nice if nice we could do have. it.
0: Yeah.
1: This is not a nice to have. This is a we must do. Um, the second thing would be invest in it. And see it as investing in prevention before it becomes a problem. Right. Uh, and really, I think I've said it twice already, but we can either decide to spend the money smart on mm-hmm. good care, or we can just spend it on cleaning up, behind bad care. We're going to spend probably the same amount of money or even more cleaning up bad care. So I'd rather treat patients properly. Um, And then finally, I guess, um, is make sure that whatever program you develop has proper, like, I don't want to say it, maybe it's accountability, maybe it's communication channels, but that kind of relationship with the top decision makers. So like CEO, vice president type levels, like this should not have this chain of bureaucracy that has to you know climb up 15 levels of red tape to get to the decision makers this needs to be seen as a priority I guess this is kind of like an extra part of the first one I said (laughs) no and uh, I think that's important
0: because if you're trying to make change and influence change the people at the top need to be able to hear it and and need to know what's happening and also take some accountability yeah exactly Excellent. Thank you so much, Dan, for joining us on today's episode. I look forward to speaking with you again. And for everyone who is wondering, Dan's website is linked in the show notes below. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to today's episode. To listen to more episodes like this, be sure to subscribe to ensure you always receive notification. Please reach out to us by email if you have any questions, comments, or feedback. We look forward to having you back with us next time.
1: Thank you for joining us
0: for the episode of I Connect with Baxter. All of the opinions and experiences expressed in this episode are those of the guest speaker and do not necessarily reflect those of Baxter Canada. If there are other areas of interest you would like to see included on future podcasts, please email those to iconnect.baxter.com.